0: Did the pandemic bring about an epidemic of hate?
1: So far this year, we've seen a pretty steady diet of race-based hate crimes that have come in in 2021.
0: I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We'll hear how City Heights is working to heal from pandemic stress.
2: Oh, we, in, with the next generation, we, we want to make sure that we have uh, our psychiatrists and we have a uh, counselling in our community because uh, uh, we feel like uh, community members need people that uh, they speak their language.
0: And we welcome a culture mapping specialist to our weekend preview. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
3: Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR.
0: Hate crime numbers are way up across California and efforts to heal a San Diego community hurt by the pandemic. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. It's Friday, July 2nd. An epidemic of hate, that's how California Attorney General Rob Bonta describes new statistics that show an alarming increase in hate crimes directed at Asian Americans and African Americans in the state. The overall number of hate crimes in California last year was the highest in more than 10 years. The rhetoric from the Trump administration about China's role in the pandemic and the country's political polarization are cited as two possible explanations for the increase. This week, Attorney General Bonta released guidelines for county prosecutors on methods for investigating and prosecuting hate crimes. Joining me is San Diego County Deputy District Attorney Leonard Trin, the lead hate crimes prosecutor for the county. And Leonard, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Now, hate crimes against Asian Americans in California is up 107% last year against African Americans up 88%. Is San Diego seeing numbers like that?
1: With respect to anti-Asian hate crimes in 2017, 2018, and 2019, we didn't even have uh, a single anti-Asian hate crime referred to us for review. Since the start of the pandemic in March of 2020, we've had three cases referred to us and we filed hate crimes charges in all three of them. With respect to anti-Black African-American hate crimes, we have seen a similar increase. In fact, a great majority of our race-based hate crimes are targeting the Black and African-American
0: people. Now, the three anti-Asian hate crimes that prosecutors filed charges here in San Diego last year, the organization Stop Asian American and Pacific Islander Hate received 42 reports from around this county. So why is there such a disparity between the reports and the prosecutions?
1: Yeah, so Stop AAPI Hate was really trying to capture any bias-related incidents that targeted the AAPI community. And so sometimes that could be just a hate incident where there's anti-Asian hate speech that's used, but it doesn't rise to the level of a hate crime. We started our own hate crime hotline in April of last year in response to the rise of anti-Asian sentiment. And since then, we've received almost 200 hate crimes tips through that hotline, and 17 of them were anti-Asian. But most of those that came in that were anti-Asian were of the the hate incident variety so the use of racial slurs or comments related to covid or going back to china that kind of thing but they didn't rise to the level of a crime
0: hate crimes statewide against latinos are also up nearly 40 percent. do you agree with attorney general bonta that we're seeing an epidemic of hate
1: particularly with respect to race-based hate crimes, which just if you look at those, those increased almost 70 percent from 2019. There were a couple of different factors that contributed to that. One, race-based hate crimes tend to increase during presidential election years. And so we actually saw a similar increase right around the election time where we had a whole spate of cases come in in October, November, that were race-based. And so I'm hopeful that we're past that now, but so far this year, we've seen a pretty steady diet of race-based hate crimes that have come in in 2021. So it doesn't look like a trend that's gone down yet.
0: The state released guidelines for prosecutors to make hate crime investigations more uniform around the state. Have you had time to look at that?
1: I looked at At it briefly, we've always been very proactive in our hate crimes prosecutions in general. And so we're usually ahead of of any statewide guidelines. We were the first office in the state of California to have a dedicated hate crimes prosecutor. Uh, We also lean pretty heavily on our hate crimes coalition and our hate crimes intelligence committee, which are two different groups that combat hate crimes in the San Diego County region. And so that's one of the reasons why we've always kind of been at the forefront of attacking and combating hate crimes.
0: Now throughout the presentation of these new statistics this week officials urged members of the public to report possible hate crimes why do you think some victims continue to remain silent
1: there's a whole bunch of reasons you know for one there's the fear of retaliation if you're being targeted because of you know your race or ethnicity or your religion or your sexual orientation those are immutable characteristics that you can't change. And so if you call attention to that by reporting a crime, that puts you in the spotlight and it puts you in a place where you might feel like you could be further victimized in the future. So the fear of retaliation is is one major reason why hate crimes victims in particular are hesitant to report. Another reason why is that if you think specifically about the immigrant community, a lot of immigrants, especially in San Diego County, come from countries where the popular belief is that government's corrupt and law enforcement's corrupt and military's corrupt. And so when they arrive in the United States, they're going to think the same things about our government and our law enforcement and our military. And so that fear of not getting the proper dignity and not trusting law enforcement and the government to do the right thing oftentimes prevents hate crimes victims from reporting.
0: What should someone do if they believe they have been a victim of a hate crime?
1: They absolutely should report it. Obviously what we're concerned about as prosecutors is holding individuals accountable for whatever crimes that they commit. And if there isn't a report to law enforcement, then there's nothing that we can do about the problem. What we know about hate crimes defendants is many of them have deep-seated biases. And so the worry for me as a hate crimes prosecutor is that if they get off the hook on one case because of victims hesitant to report, they could just continue further victimizing other members of that same community, which they have a bias against. I've
0: been speaking with San Diego County Deputy District Attorney Leonard Trin, and thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: No problem, anytime.
0: The COVID-19 pandemic has dealt blows to many people's mental, physical, and economic health, especially in San Diego's immigrant communities. KPBS reporter, Max Roven nadler tells us about how a group of peer counselors in City Heights are trying to heal the community by both connecting people to much needed services and just listening to
3: them. Case numbers for the COVID-19 pandemic are down this summer, but the devastation the pandemic wrought on immigrant communities in San Diego is still very much being felt. Hamadi Jumali, the executive director of the Somali Bantu community of San Diego, can hear it in the voices of the people who call him at all hours, looking for help in a desperate situation.
2: I think in, our, in the community, a lot, of the, with the, a lot of the community doesn't know their rights. Uh, and with working with, this, with the community, we are, we are educating the community. Help
3: is out there, thanks to a steady stream of federal and state funding to stave off evictions, help people make up lost income, and get utility bills paid. But connecting these communities to help in languages they actually understand has been a challenge after such a chaotic year. While Jumali takes these types of emergency calls as part of his regular job, he's now joined by over 24 other crisis counselors, part of a project that began in March from the San Diego Refugee Communities Coalition, CalHOPE Counseling Project, and the United Women of East Africa. The project came together after a study found immigrants in San Diego were three times more likely to be unemployed than other San Diegans.
4: Increased anxiety around um, health monitoring, you know, loss of jobs, the physical isolation um, from support systems and communities. This pandemic has impacted the refugee and new immigrant community more than the general population.
3: That's Claire Enemark. She's helping to lead this program, which uses federal emergency money to train crisis counselors who can speak with immigrant communities in their own languages. Right now, help is available in 18 different languages. Immigrants can call a single number then get put through to someone who speaks their language. The counselors are pulled from 11 local community organizations, many of which are based in City Heights. The organizations have close ties to the local refugee and asylum seeker communities.
4: Our program is really unique. Um, One of the... The main aspects that makes our program unique is it's a peer-based workforce. So we have 25 community support navigators who themselves are refugee and new immigrants. So they have this lived experience of surviving the pandemic, right, as we all have. But they have survived the pandemic with this this unique experience.
3: Flyers advertising the program have been distributed at immigrant-owned marketplaces throughout City Heights. And its number has been shared on WhatsApp message groups all trying to reach the community where it's at. The hope is that the counseling program meets all the needs of people at the moment of crisis, acknowledging that a financial crisis can easily segue into one involving someone's mental health. One of our community support
4: navigators, uh, a client reached out to her, said that he needed some help in paying his utility bill. He wasn't able to pay his utility bill. Um, And in that process, He opened up to our community support navigator that his wife had died of COVID just a few months earlier. Had our staff not been providing some of that essential practical support up front, he might not have felt comfortable opening
3: up. For Jamali, who's already been doing this work for years, he's just happy to see there's a new generation of peer counselors getting trained. What he wants to see the most, though, are mental health professionals and social workers coming out of the community.
2: We, with the next generation, we, we want to make sure that we have our psychiatrists, we have a counseling in our community because we feel like community members need people that they speak their language. The program is slated to run through the fall its
3: leaders hope that further funding allows for the program to continue as long as the mental and financial impacts of the pandemic are still being felt. Anyone looking for help can call 888-222-0980. Maxwell adler KPBS News.
0: Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news events and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it.
1: This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project.
0: Listener supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. As we celebrate Independence Day this weekend, we're going to take a closer look at some art exhibitions in San Diego that tell the wider story of who we consider to be American and what it means to have an identity linked with the land. Think of it as a mini art tour. Joining me is KPBS arts editor, Julia Dixon Evans. And welcome Julia. Hi Maureen, thank you. Also joining us is cultural strategist and founder of the San Diego Culture Mapping Project, Andrea Angie Chandler, and welcome to you. Thank you Maureen, happy to be here for sure. First, let's start in the North County with artist Javier Aragín Viegas and his new solo exhibition at the Hill Street Country Club. Andrea, you've studied this artist's work. Tell us a little bit about what to expect and why this work is important right now.
5: Absolutely, Maureen. Like you said in your intro, I think we're looking with this exhibit and a few others at the many ways that Americans from different backgrounds connect to the actual physical land here and, you know, what that complicated feeling is like. And that feeling really comes across in Javier's work. He's using organic materials like wood and very normal objects to tell these stories about how he's exploring masculinity, how he's connecting to the women in his life. And he's using colors and lines that, you know, would look really simple on a fast glance. But as you look into the story he's telling, you're really, really taken in by the work. And um, his relationship to America and its values is really tested as an artist creating work. It's very 2021. Javier
0: Arguín Viegas's exhibition Antiquado is on view now through August 20th at the Hill Street Country Club in Oceanside. Heading to North Park, artist Kim Sweeney is in residence at Art Produce, and there'll be a community potluck with her tonight. Julia, tell us about Kim Sweeney's work and how we can check it out.
6: Yeah, so her work is really informed by food, by intergenerational memory, and her identity as a second-generation Cambodian-American. She's young, and I saw her work Fish Loop Soup at Domestic Geographies earlier this year. It's kind of about the way her own American childhood coexisted with her family history. And she also has a piece called Boba Accident. And I I just really love her bold use of oil paint and vivid colors that make these memories and little vignettes just really loud and striking. And it's super fitting that this closing reception involves food.
0: Artist in residence Kim Sweeney's Community Potluck will take place in the Art Produce Garden tonight from six to eight. In Sherman Heights, an unconventional place for art has a new curator in residence. Andrea, tell us about Art
5: Power Equities, Kamal Martin and which artist is on view next. Absolutely. So this is Kamal Martin's second showing at his residency with um, JW Communications. And so what he's doing is using this 100-plus-year-old Victorian house to show these works that are exploring so many interesting themes. In this current show with Andrew um, Alsaid, what we're seeing are his really large-scale works being shrunk down. Um, so they're smaller, but they're such intense colors and conversations and that's kind of at art power and equities, like at their base, they are trying to give a platform to artists of color um, and other artists to have people look at their work in a different way, to have their work be in a space where maybe they wouldn't have been seen before. So in this Victorian um, home turned office there in Sherman Heights, you know, the viewers will get a chance to be really up close with this work, which is normal mural size. Normally, you know, he's working at a big scale, but he's using the walls. He's making new work. It seems very 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 exciting.
0: Andrew Alcasid's Flowers and Fields exhibition will open Saturday with an artist talk at 3:30 at JW Communications in Sherman Heights. In San Ysidro, a new group exhibition just opened that aims to imagine a post-colonial, post-gender future. Julia, can you tell us a little bit about some of the works?
6: Yeah, and this exhibition is called And We Will Sing in the Tall Grass Again, Postcolonial Futurates at the End of Gender, which is an amazing and evocative title. It just opened with work by 13 artists. They're all kind of exploring a vision of a future without categories or without borders. And they're all emerging and young artists and curators, all working in the Southern California region and all using a variety of mediums. Many of them look towards the past and the body. And one standout work for me is Larissa Rogers, her "A Poetic of Living. She gathered soil from two sites in her hometown of Charlottesville, Virginia that have ties to slavery. And she's mixing the soil at the gallery with soil from the border here, forming it into the shapes of bodies and planting seeds that will grow over the course of the exhibition. So that's one of the works.
0: And Andrea, what does this exhibition mean in the context of American independence?
5: Looking at the ways that artists of color have operated outside of traditional art pathways, um, July is Pride in in San Diego. And I think the title of the exhibit tells us that we're going Post gender and this conversation about the intersection of non conforming um, gender identities as well as artists of colors, it's one at the forefront of the American art conversation right now. And as America turns 245 um, this coming weekend, it's really still figuring out how we exist and how many identities show up. Um, racially, class-wise, gender. Um, so I think what's happening in San Isidro is gonna be really on point with what we're exploring this weekend. And We Will Sing Again in the Tall Grass is a group exhibition now
0: on view at the Front Gallery in San Isidro. Gallery hours are Tuesday through Thursday through September 1st. For details on these and more events or to sign up for Julia's weekly arts newsletter, go to kpbs.org slash arts. To learn more about Andrea's culture mapping project, go to culturemappingsd.com. I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans and San Diego cultural strategist and arts worker
5: Andrea Angie Chandler. And thank you both. Thank you, Maureen. It was a pleasure. Um, So many good collaborations happening in the San Diego art scene. Thank you for featuring them.
6: And thank you, Andrea, for joining us today. Have a great weekend.